Thank you, Michael, Kay, and Tom. That's great. When is the hungriest you've ever been in your life? Can you think of a time when you thought, this is the hungriest I've ever been? I would argue that the majority of, majority of us living here in the prosperity of Canada probably haven't ever experienced truly extreme hunger before. Would I be right? At least not like most people in, in many places in the world today that experience hunger daily, the pains of hunger and starvation that can overshadow anything else in their life. However, we would definitely say that there are times that we get pretty hungry. <laughs> we certainly do. get. We develop quite an appetite for food. And if you've ever gone for a meal or two without eating, you know what I mean. You can start to feel pretty hungry. Maybe you felt you were just too busy to eat or too lazy to prepare food, or, or maybe you're too poor to actually go out and buy some food. Maybe more spiritually, you fasted for a certain amount of time, for a meal or two or a day, and in order to pray to God and to wait on Him. Maybe you'd say, the hungriest you've ever been was after a long, hard day of physical work. Maybe at your job, maybe in your yard, maybe playing sports. Well, we develop quite an appetite when we work hard physically. If you're a teenage boy here, you're probably scoffing at this question. You're like, when's the hungriest I've ever been? Every single day. <laughs> you're eating your parents out of the house and home because you are constantly hungry. I think the hungriest I've probably been was after when I was much younger and I had major surgery. And for a few days afterwards, I was fed intravenously. And so I was nourished well. But there's no substitute really for actual food going into your stomachs. And so I felt really, really hungry. Some of you are thinking, when's the hungriest I've ever been? Well, I'm not sure, but Pastor Matt better not go too long today, or else it might be right now. <laughs> right? Well, don't worry. If you get too hungry, there's a potluck downstairs right afterwards, so I can go out however long I want, right? <laughs> no, no, I'll, I'll spare you that. <laughs> but I didn't ask you this question to make you feel hungry right now. I ask you this question because I want you to consider today how you satisfy your hunger. When we hunger for food, we satisfy our hunger by eating something, by eating food to fill our stomachs. But today, I'm going to talk about much more than just hunger for food. So the question becomes, how do we satisfy our hunger for anything that we need in life? How do we do that? As we go to God's Word today, we're going to see our true need for many things in life, but that there is only one thing in the world that can satisfy all of our needs. We're going to see this by looking at a fairly familiar story for most of us, and it involves food. It's really the world's most famous picnic. And so, but God's Word, I think, is always fresh whenever we come to it. So no matter how familiar it is, it can always be teaching us, and, and we can learn new things. So if you take your Bibles, please turn with me to Luke chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible of your own, you can use one in the, in the pew in front of you. It will be on page 866. 
Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 10, is where we'll be today. But before we start to read this section together, I want to begin by praying for us. So please pray with me. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word today, I pray that you would enlighten our hearts, that you would illumine your word to to us. I pray that we would see your truth, we would know that it's true, and that it would change our lives. Please send your spirit to our hearts to work on them now. Please guide us into truth as you promised to do. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So at the beginning of Luke 9, we saw Jesus send out his disciples on what was basically a short-term missions trip. He wanted his disciples to learn how to do ministry the way he did ministry. So he sent them out all over Galilee to preach the kingdom and to heal people. In verse 10, we had seen this previously, it said, On their return, the apostles told Jesus all that they had done. So the disciples had just got off this surprisingly successful internship or missions trip, but they had not learned everything yet. No siree. We're going to see this as the story goes ahead. But verse 10 says, On their return, the apostles told them all they had done, and he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. Now, Bethsaida was a small fishing village on the northern side of the Sea of Galilee. It was actually the hometown of several of the disciples, including Peter, Andrew, and Philip. But the countryside around Bethsaida was pretty much uninhabited. It was known as a desolate place in other passages. It was an unpopulated wilderness. And that is where Jesus and his disciples retreated to. In another account of the story, Mark 6 reports that Jesus said, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. Okay, So they went to this place in order to rest. They needed to recharge their batteries. But alas, the always growing and increasingly exuberant crowd that followed Jesus was not sensitive to those needs. And so we read this. They withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida in verse 11. When the crowds learned it, they followed him. And Jesus welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now I have to say, being with all of you on Sunday mornings is one of my absolute favorite things to do. I love singing with you, I love preaching to you, I love talking with you after the services, learning more about you, and Sundays are often one of the highlights of my week. I love them, and we're also happy to hang out with you after the service as well. Uh, whether that's being at a potluck or at a restaurant or at one of our homes, wherever. We want to get closer to you, and we'd love to be able to do that. I love Sundays. However, I'll be honest with you. For me, Sundays are also exhausting. Ministry can be extremely tiring, and once I eventually get home, I usually crash. (laughs) And I can't imagine that if one day I went home after church, I eventually got home, and I crashed, maybe I pulled out a book, or I turned on a ball game, and then all of a sudden my doorbell starts ringing. So I go to the door, open it up, 
And surprise, all of you (laughs) are either standing on my porch or in my driveway wanting to see me. (laughs) You'd be like, hey, Pastor Matt, I hope you don't mind, but, you know, we thought your sermon was so great this morning, we just wanted to hear some more. (laughs) We just thought we'd invite ourselves over. Is that okay? (laughs) Now, I don't know exactly how I'd feel. But I doubt you'd get a very gracious response from me. (laughs) I probably would not be thinking, what would Jesus do in this situation? (laughs) However, what did Jesus do in this situation? It's pretty remarkable. It's It's a pretty good parallel here. In verse 11, they go to rest from their busy ministry. But when the crowds learned it, they followed him where he was resting. And what did he do? He welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. This powerfully displays Jesus' amazing compassion. Jesus wanted to be alone, but he welcomed the crowd regardless of his own desires. What an example for us of selfless, sacrificial, loving ministry. They may have already skimmed ahead or noticed the title of this passage and think, oh, I know this story. It's a very familiar story, one that many of us learned way back in Sunday school. But I often think that we don't grasp the point of this story. Why did Luke write this? So so Jesus fed 5,000 people. Good story. Cool miracle. What's the point? Why should we read this story? Why should we study it? Why was it written? Is it more than just a good Sunday school story for kids? I hope to show you the, the main point of this story today, and it is more than just a story. It's an historical account of Jesus' life recorded in Scripture for a reason. And so we have to figure out what that reason is. And as a matter of fact, in the verses that we've already read, we can already begin to see... The major point of this entire story. Here it is. Okay, If you're taking notes, you can take notes. Otherwise, you can listen. It says this. Jesus shows his comprehensive power in the way that he provides for us. That's the main point of this story. Jesus' vast power is displayed when he provides for all of our needs in the way that he provides for us. Think about the question, why? Did Jesus show compassion to this crowd, especially in the state that he was in at this time? The answer is because they were a crowd in need. He and his disciples needed rest, but these people needed him more. Some of them had injuries and illnesses that deeply impacted their way of life, and they knew that Jesus, out of all the people on the earth, could heal them. And regardless of these people's health, all the people there were there to hear from Jesus, to hear God's word. And they wanted Jesus to teach them more. They're fascinated by his teachings. And these people weren't just an inconvenience to Jesus. Jesus saw them as an opportunity. It was an opportunity to once again show his comprehensive power as the Son of God. People needed truth. So he gave them truth. People needed health. 
so he gave them health. And he showed his power by powerfully and supernaturally providing for them in both ways. It's easy for us today to either completely miss or simply forget God's provision for us every day. Really, any blessing in your life has been given to you by God. So, do you have decent health? Or is your family healthy? God provided that health. Do you have a family in the first place? Or do you have a spouse or maybe some good friends around you? God provided those relationships. Do you have a quality education or a steady job? God provided those. Do you have food on your table or in your fridge? God provided it. Do you even have a table and a fridge and a home? God provided those. Do you appreciate your church or or the blessing from God's Word that we can read every day? These are amazing provisions from God. And many of us prayed for these things at one time or another. And so they're actually answers to prayer. We forget. We miss them. And if your life is not so nice or blessed right now, it's likely that even that hard season is a gift. It's an opportunity for you to grow closer to God, to, for you to realize your need for Him. It's a priceless opportunity to feel His presence, to feel His love and His care for you in a more personal way. It's about time that we saw every blessing in our life as a provision from God. Because that's what they are. Now we might think that, well that's not really all that powerful for God to provide for us. But it is. <laughs> Providing for all of our human needs is way beyond our human ability. We can't do this life on our own, and if we think we can, we're delusional. We can't control our own health, or even our work situation, or our national or global economy. They're out of our control. We can't control how other people will treat us. We can't control uh, that our relationships will all be stable. We can't guarantee that our prosperity will last forever. I take pride in the fact that I can provide for my family. That's great. But I can only provide for them as long as God provides for me. I have to realize that. When was the last time that God provided something for you? And met one of your needs, whatever that need was. Think about that. And thank Him for it right now. Thank Him. Praise Him for His undeserved grace in your life. In verse 11, we saw two distinct needs that Jesus met for this crowd of people. And this is the same for much of His ministry. He frequently addressed both people's physical needs and 
their spiritual needs. And we can think, well, I can see how sick people legitimately needed Jesus' healing in this moment. I mean, if I had cancer or epilepsy or polio and there was someone who could cure me, I'd definitely seek them out. But what do I mean that they had spiritual needs that Jesus met for them? They needed healing, but how did they need the kingdom of God? That's what the other the other thing that Jesus did here. He preached the kingdom of God to them. The fact of the matter is that spiritual needs are often the most overlooked needs in our world today. They are way overlooked. They're not as visible or noticeable, but overlooking them can be devastating. They can worry us. They can consume us. They can emotionally cripple us or burden us with guilt and shame. They impact our character. They impact our relationships and our eternal destinies. We essentially all have a cancer in our souls that must be cured. We have rebelled against God and set up our own kingdoms in opposition to Him. And that is why Jesus came not only healing, but also proclaiming the kingdom. As it says here, when the crowds learned that they followed Him, and He welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. What we see here is this, that Jesus shows his comprehensive power in the way he provides for us, compassionately meeting our spiritual needs. Jesus' power can be seen in his provision of compassionately meeting our spiritual needs. Jesus looks at us, and he sees our heart conditions. And so he comes speaking of the kingdom of God. In Mark's account of the same story, he said that when Jesus saw the great crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And so he began to teach them many things. His compassion wasn't mainly because people were sick. His compassion was primarily because people were lost. Like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus was always willing to be inconvenienced or interrupted if it meant that he could meet people's greatest need. And what was their greatest need? It was a spiritual one. They needed to hear about the kingdom of God, about the gospel of Jesus. They needed to be forgiven of their sins. They needed to be freed from the curse and the guilt of sin. They needed to see God's grace for them. They needed Jesus. They needed God. And there's a tendency for compassion ministry today to focus only on physical needs. And it is vitally important to help people in their physical needs. We need to be doing that. But if we always look after their physical needs and never their spiritual, it is ultimately worthless. Just like I said last week, there is a great need for both physical 
and spiritual ministry. We need to both spread the truth of Jesus and the love of Jesus. Nothing underscored this need more than Jesus' eventual death and resurrection. That really underlined it, exclamation point. Jesus' death and resurrection were the climax of his earthly life. And they, if you think about it, were entirely about meeting people's spiritual needs. Jesus died in order to display God's love to all mankind. Jesus died to satisfy God's wrath against sin. Jesus died to forgive people of their sins, to cure their soul's cancers. And then he rose to give us life. Abundant life now and eternal life in the future. Jesus was telling people about the spiritual kingdom of God. The kingdom which would be inaugurated the day he died. If you've never responded to this good news about Jesus before, you need to today. Whether or not you believe me, the greatest need in your entire life is for Jesus. I pray you can be humble enough to admit that this morning. Repent of your sin. Ask Jesus to graciously save you. You know what? He'll give you what you ask. Bless you beyond your wildest dreams. To provide salvation for you, meeting your greatest need for Him. Well, spiritual needs are pretty clearly the most important. Our story today seems to focus on the physical needs. And we see this in the way Jesus healed people compassionately first, but we see it much more so in the miracle that's at the crux of this story. See, Jesus shows his comprehensive power in the way he provides for us, not only meeting our spiritual needs, but also abundantly meeting our physical needs. Jesus shows his power by providing for us, overwhelmingly meeting our physical needs. I want you to imagine being a part of this crowd on, the day, on this day. This would have been an electrically charged crowd. Not only had they tracked Jesus down in the wilderness and they found him, but lots of people all around were being healed and freed and restored, and God's kingdom was coming. It was an exciting day to be alive. But just about then another different need arose. And it only began to grow in their minds. A very human need, a routine need, a practical need, and a need that every single person would have experienced, likely about the same time. Verse 12 says this, Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away, to go into the surrounding villages and countryside, countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. Straight to the point. Everyone was starting to get hungry. They needed to eat. 
my wife is awesome at looking after my and my family's need to eat, and almost every day that I leave for work, she sends a packed lunch with me. It's, it's so great. I get a healthy, home-cooked meal almost every day for lunch. Once in a while, though, I forget my lunch. And she, then she said so lovingly prepared, either in the fridge or by the door, and I just feel terrible that I forget something that she so lovingly did for me. But on this day, an entire crowd of thousands of people seemingly forgot to either bring or even pack their dinners. Apparently, no one had anticipated being out very late, so no one brought food with them. And as the day went on, they thought, oh, they're getting hungry, but we can't leave yet. We might miss something. They were so enthralled by Jesus' words and his miracles that they ignored their hunger. They put it off. But it was starting to get worse. Stomachs were probably audibly starting to growl by now. They had physically exerted themselves just to get to Bethsaida. And after a long day in the sun, they needed nourishment. They're starting to think, need to find something to eat, and, and pretty soon. I'm not going to be able to last much longer. Soon the disciples approach Jesus with this concern. They're like, Jesus, I think we need to take a dinner break soon. You've been at it for hours, and, and some people are starting to get real hungry, including us. We're getting up there. No one's going to leave until you wrap things up. So maybe you should start to wrap things up. In fact, we should just call it a day and send, let people scatter to find food. We wanted rest anyway, didn't we? They can go down the road to McDonald's or to the local fish market or or find a shawarma shack or something. (laughs) In verse 12, that's basically what they said. They said, send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. Now, it may not seem like it at first, but this showed a lack of faith on the disciples' part. Jesus' response had to have shocked and confused the disciples. Verse 13. But Jesus said to them, You give them something to eat. That was an order. You give them something to eat. That must have sounded bizarre. It was a crazy command. Okay, people need to eat? Okay, go ahead. Get them something to eat. Do it. What? Jesus, you've you've got to be kidding me. I think the sun is getting to you as well. Right? How in the world could the disciples feed this massive crowd of people? Maybe they started thinking through their options. Thinking, well, okay, some of us are fishermen here and we could, we're on the Sea of Galilee. We could put out our boats and maybe do some fishing. And like earlier in our story, maybe Jesus could provide another miraculous catch for us. And we could bring those nets in and, and start cooking fish for everyone. But if we did that, 
It would still be hours before anyone got anything to eat. Not going to last that long. Maybe, well, we could go and raid Andrew and Peter's family homes. Maybe they've got some food stored away. That could feed maybe, what, a dozen people? Or we could go steal some food or, or start begging for some food. Those either aren't right or they would take too long again. Or we could go down and, and buy some food for people. That sure take a whole lot of money. It'd empty our bank account. Besides, there may not even be enough food to buy to feed all these people. We could find out if anyone here brought some food with them. Hey, everyone, listen up. Did anyone bring food with them? Silence. Except for one young boy walking forward. A little basket. I brought some bread and fish. Do you need it? Little basket. Five small buns of bread, two fish. Disciples was <laughs> Wow. That's it? Everyone? Really? That's all the food we have? Hey, kid, come with us. We want to show Jesus just how much food we have. Show him how crazy he is right now. Verse 13, Jesus said to them, you give them something to eat. And they said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we're to go and buy food for all of these people. And then it says how big this crowd actually was. For there were about 5,000 men. Now that's not counting women or children. This crowd was likely over 10,000 people. Huge crowd. And they come to Jesus. Jesus, this little basket of food is literally all the food we have. As far as we see it, we've got two options if you really want to stay here for a bit longer. We either feed everyone from this basket, which means about two people get to eat, or we go break our banks and buy food for everyone here. But that's lunacy. Five pieces of bread and two fish for 10,000 people might as well have been nothing. It is, was such an extremely insufficient amount. It was mathematically insignificant. And in all the other accounts of this story, it says the disciples estimated that buying food for this crowd would cost about eight months' wages. The equivalent of about twenty to $30,000 today. That's a restaurant bill I would not want to pick up. <laughs> Tell us if we're wrong, Jesus, but those seem to be the two only two options that we see. And to us, they both seem pretty stupid. Well, they were thinking Jesus had to be out of his mind. Jesus was likely a bit disappointed. Those are the only two options you guys can come up with. That's all. Remember. Remember the context here. These guys had seen Jesus heal the sick, 
cast out demons, calm a storm, and raise the dead. On top of that, they had just experienced holding this same kind of power themselves. They were able to go out and do these things. And yet immediately following their own miraculous ministries, they thought their only two options were to shop or starve. Philip Ryken says this. He says, The trouble with the disciples was that they were looking at things from a merely human perspective. They were acting like men without a God, thinking only in terms of what they had on hand and what they had the ability to provide from their own resources, not considering the power and the providence of their God. He continues, says, To be sure, the disciples had never seen this kind of miracle before, so we can understand why the disciples did not anticipate this miracle in advance. Yet by now, they should have learned to expect the unexpected from Jesus and to ask for his help whenever things were humanly impossible. Maybe Jesus wanted to see if his disciples would attempt something supernatural themselves. We'll never know, though, because they didn't try. They didn't even ask for help. So Jesus took matters into his own hands. Verse 14 says, And he said to his disciples, Have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. We don't know exactly why I told them to get people into groups of 50. Probably just to get things organized to help with efficiency later. And people didn't usually eat standing up, so he had everyone sit down. It was like Jesus told them, get everyone ready to eat. And just trust me. I'm sure they were confused. Still. But to the disciples' credit, they obeyed. And it says this in verse 15, And they did so, and had them all sit down. I know this definitely wasn't the reason he had people sit down, but I like to think that Jesus told everyone to sit down, as in, you better sit down, because you're not going to believe what's about to happen. Verse 16, And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. So just like we habitually do before meals, Jesus prayed before eating. He looked up to heaven, taking the posture of prayer. His posture means something. Then he gave thanks to God for providing the food. Jesus was again underscoring the truth that all we have is a provision from God. Everything we receive, Even every meal is a gift from God. Now this action still must have seemed laughable to his disciples and to the crowd around Jesus. Why was Jesus thanking God for a minuscule, insignificant amount of food? Why would he do that? But that is when Jesus worked his miracle. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, twelve baskets 
of broken pieces. Now this is such an amazing miracle that I cannot even imagine how he made this miracle work. I can't picture it. The Greek verb implies that Jesus kept breaking and breaking and breaking and breaking the bread. So, that means the bread and fish were literally multiplying at his touch. Jesus essentially stretched the scientific law that matter cannot be created or destroyed. He was on the spot creating new matter by multiplying the matter he already had. Science may be skeptical here, but remember, Jesus created the scientific laws. He is the creator of them. God dwells outside of them. The supernatural realm is not under them. Jesus was acting as the creator right in front of everyone seated around him. Talk about power. And the result was that everyone, all 10,000 people plus, were able to eat. And they didn't just get a little snack. It says they, were, they all ate and were satisfied, which means they ate until they were full. They didn't want any more. If there was a waiter coming by with a dessert menu, say, hey, would you like to look at the dessert menu today? they like, no, thank you. Didn't leave any space. Stuffed. I find it amusing that Jesus basically enlisted his disciples as waiters here. He said, and he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. It's like, guys, you didn't trust that I could provide? Couldn't figure out any other options? So I'm going to show you how it's done. But I'm still going to use you. In fact, I'm going to use you to just get everyone seated, okay, get them ready to eat, and then you're going to serve these people that you wanted to get rid of. Everyone else is going to be tasting Bread and fish. You're going to be tasting humble pie. I think this story really could be a parable for all kinds of ministry. That even when we feel helpless or powerless to do anything of value, God can. When we are weak, when we're tired, when we're burnt out, even when we doubt, God is still powerful. The disciples would serve a basket of food to the people, and then they'd return empty-handed. But Jesus' hands were never empty. He just kept providing the bread and fish. And the lesson is the same for us, really. That when we come empty-handed, his hands are always full. But the main point of this story is what we've repeated. That God provides abundantly for our needs. Do we trust him to do so? Do we believe he can? Do we believe he will? When has he ever failed us before? Like one of the verses we read earlier, Psalm 111, says, The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. 1 Timothy 6.17 charges us to not be haughty, nor to set our hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything 
to enjoy. Or later in Luke, we're going to see this soon, Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? Is there somewhere in your life that you need to confess a lack of trust in God's provision? Maybe in your finances? Maybe in your job search? Maybe in your search for a spouse? Maybe in where you'll live. Maybe in your kid's future. Maybe in your health. Trusting God does not mean everything will go as you expect or hope it to go. It doesn't mean everything will be perfect or immediate or painless. But what I can promise you is that God will be faithful. He'll provide. May we not be like the Israelites in this manner. Psalm 78 recounts a story from way before this that they skeptically ask, can God spread a table in the wilderness? Can he also give bread or provide meat for his people? Therefore, when the Lord heard, he was full of wrath. A fire was kindled against Jacob. His anger rose against Israel. And why? Because they did not believe in God and did not trust his saving power. These stories are testimonies that God can spread a table in the wilderness. Jesus just did here quite literally. Our lives are testimonies that God has spread a table in the wilderness for us. In our story today, Jesus' provision was so abundant, the people weren't just full. There were leftovers. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces. God's provision always overflows. It is abundant. He anoints our heads and our cups overflow. This would have brought to mind some miracles for the Jews. They would have thought about some of their famous prophets, Elijah and Elisha, who would perform miracles pretty similar to this, but on a much smaller scale. This also would have reminded them of what we just read about in Psalm 78, of God's provision of manna through Moses, giving bread to his people in the wilderness. It's no wonder that the people concluded that Jesus must be a prophet. And not just a prophet. John's account of the story says the people decided this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. The Messiah. This has to be him. They thought Jesus was the Messiah and they wanted to make him king right then. Once again, the miracle pointed people back to Christ. It showed his power. But Jesus knew it wasn't time for him to become king yet, and so he withdrew again, as we'll see. 
The difference for us today is that through Jesus, the kingdom has already come. Not in its full expression, but definitely over our hearts. And it is absolutely right for us to crown him as king in our hearts now. Now, in the points I gave you today, I separated the spiritual needs from the physical needs. But in reality, these are both inseparably related. God meets our physical needs by working spiritually and supernaturally. He is constantly working in ways we cannot see, behind the scenes. God also met our spiritual needs by coming physically in the person of Jesus. See how they're interrelated? There are deep connections between the spiritual and the physical. And this miracle that Jesus performed physically in Luke 9 was also spiritually symbolic. In Scripture, bread almost always was a symbol of spiritual sustenance and life. For example, Deuteronomy 8.3 says that God fed his people manna in the desert so that he might make make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. The physical bread pointed to a greater spiritual reality. And then on this day, after people had eaten bread and fish from Jesus, the the people around were starting to see the parallels between Moses' manna and Jesus' miracle. They thought, this seems similar. So they asked him about it. But then Jesus took the parallel further and says, as it's recorded in John... Six, he said, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. The crowd then requested, well, sir, give us this bread always. You know how Jesus responded? Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Do you get it? This miracle of the bread multiplying was meant to point to the bread of life. The satisfying of their stomachs was meant to point to the satisfying of their souls. The point of the story is that Jesus shows his comprehensive power in the way he provides for us in meeting our spiritual and physical needs, but most importantly that he meets all these needs through himself. This story is enduring because it addresses so many of our normal needs as humans. But the main lesson of all is that all we really need is Jesus. So where are you looking to satisfy your hunger? You tasted the bread of life? If not, there's a table laid out before you. If you have, 
Are you finding all of your satisfaction in Him? He is the only one who can satisfy. And if we trust Him, He will satisfy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for sending Your Son to be that bread of life for the world. Thank you that we have tasted of it and have experienced life as it's meant to be. We praise you that that Jesus is coming again to restore your kingdom fully over us. But for now, help us to realize your kingdom over our hearts and to crown you as our king and to worship you as our savior and to find all of our satisfaction in life in you, not in our riches, not in our homes, not in our friends, not in anything else in our life, but help us to be satisfied in you. We ask this all in Jesus' name.